guess what? It's another day in the week, following a day in the week, and we're on the Review Squared. Thank you for listening. As always, I'm Gideon Karyuki. I'm Ethan Pelland. Alejandro de la Sandra. And I'm Haley Smilo. And as always, we have a show for you. Lots to talk about. It has been a very hectic week in the world. So... This week, I'm talking about um, a little bit about COVID-19 in college campuses. For those of you who may be new to this show, we're all college students at Arizona State. So this is an issue that is close to all of us here. Anyway, here at Arizona State, the latest figures as of September 10th reported by the university are 637 active coronavirus cases, breaking down to 628 students and nine employees across the campuses, with 505 off-campus cases, 96 in isolation in Tempe, and 27 across the downtown Phoenix West and Polytechnic campuses. The corresponding cumulative numbers are cumulative over the whole recording period, are 1,385 students and 28 employees. According to the state press, the community percent for, uh, positivity rate for ASU is about 2.8%. In the state press article about these numbers, it was noted that the cumulative numbers minus the clear did not add up to the active cases number. The university noted that these numbers did include cases before August 1st. As of the time of the recording, ASU Sync is still in effect, allowing classes to take place, place both in person and via Zoom at the same time and dorms are still closed off to visitors and are being de-densified where there are communal bathrooms and spaces. To take a national look at COVID-19 on college campuses, a New York Times survey has reported 88,000 cases on campuses since the pandemic started and 36,000 were recorded this week alone. The article does note that those are all not new numbers and includes new reports from increased testing. Case numbers are climbing at campuses all across the country, ranging from 500 cases within two weeks at the State University of New York at, um, I'm probably gonna butcher this, Wanata, leading to students being sent home, to Illinois State University having about 1,300 cases, with about 14% of those being added this week alone. With this, public health experts are now calling campuses hotspots for transmission of the coronavirus and continue to urge for widespread testing. And to add another dimension, Northeastern University in Boston made national headlines last week for suspending 11 first year students for the semester for breaking social distancing and not allowing a tuition refund for them. With all this, I guess it begs the question, what does the panel think about all this? Well, I don't think, you know, obviously, like you said, the they they were punished because they didn't social distance or sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah, it, the Northeastern case, um, they were breaking social distancing rules. They were having a, a social in their dorm. Okay. So obviously, like, you know, we don't want people to gather and they probably shouldn't have gathered but I don't think they should have been as punished hardly as they did because tuition is a lot of money and we're in a pandemic and money is scarce right now. Jobs are scarce right now. Um, so I d don't really like that the students basically get no refund out of it um, because one, it's you, sh you can't expect students to not gather at all. It's just, it's going to happen. Like, you can't expect everyone to be on their best behavior. And I don't even blame students for um, totally getting together. Do I want them to get together? No. Do I want large gatherings? No. Um, doesn't seem, or obviously what they had wasn't a large gathering. But when we're talking about gatherings in general, they're just gonna happen. And especially with college students, like you wanna hang out with your friends, you wanna go do things, it's just gonna happen. So the universities can keep talking about, hey, like, follow the rules, like be a part of this community and do what's right. But you encourage people to gather as soon as you open the campuses, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I think Alejandro is right. Obviously, universities are going to be a hot spot for COVID-19 places. It'd be ridiculous to believe that college students are going to follow every little social distancing rule, wear a mask everywhere they go. It, it, that's just like ludicrous. That's not logical. Um, but as he said, yeah, you're part of a community. You need to, it, everything's risk versus reward. It's just figuring out what you're willing to do and what you think's safe and what's not. And realizing that like, yes, as 19 year olds, we 19, 20, 21, we are less likely to get severely sick from COVID. We are less likely to die. We still can, there's still plenty of cases where people do, but know that then you can't go around your parents and your grandparents and older citizens because that's putting them at risk for something that their bodies probably can't process it's worth understanding what the risk you're taking is and maybe you're fine with doing it for yourself, but understand how you're impacting other people because it's not just you. Like people can't be selfish about something like this. I um, guess my thoughts are, is that of course, as I think most of the panels said that we want students to be taking a responsibility. I think that the gravity of a 36, like for instance, with the Northwestern students, essentially a $36,500 fine for breaking these rules seems to be excessive. I mean, in terms of surely, I think, I think it's totally, if really, if the universities want to kick out these students, I have less of an issue with that as the aspect of that they're not returning the money that they paid for their tuition because I mean, that's a lot of money and you're already in a sense being punished enough that you now can't go to college anywhere else because now they really don't, you can't register for classes and most colleges have a registration deadline. So you're at least having your plans and your sort of what you were intending to do during that at least that semester now put off because you can't be in school, but to also take away $36,000 from them for no services rendered, it just doesn't seem right. Yeah, if you look at like how much a literal fee for, you know, speeding is or littering, those fees are nowhere nearly as expensive. And I understand that it's not the same like value, but you know, you have to find a level of logic in what equates to what and to put people in a position where they can't pay and are potentially now going into even worse debt because we all know college is very expensive most people come out of college with debt is probably problematic and doesn't look very good for northeastern which is a university with a fairly good reputation to begin with yeah no i wholeheartedly agree on this especially concerning the Northeastern situation. Yeah, what the students did wasn't right. I'm not here to say they have no responsibility. They sure did. But, okay, come on. Let's not be dumb. Like, like as we have all said, like, yeah, you're bringing college students back. There's going to be socialization and there's going to be gatherings. And universities are really not thinking if they think that, that they can just magically institute rules and people will follow them. That is simply not, well, I think there's this notion, at least administrators want to believe, but I'm sure they know isn't true, that, that, most, that every college student's gonna think risk versus reward. No, they're not. I could tell you, like of any, like of, just of any group of people I could, if uh, you could pick in society to say risk versus reward, you're gonna pick college students. Like, and I say this as a 20 year old college student, like, come on, let's, let's not be dumb. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, and as for the Northeastern situation specifically, yeah, there has to be some sort of consequence. A $36,000 fine, I mean, it is a de facto $36,000 fine, is excessive and very immoral. And they ought to be ashamed of themselves for that one. One thing, or one thing I just thought about right now is that 
you know, colleges talk a lot about community and wanting to create community. And it seems like mixed um, messaging to, you know, talk about people being a community when they can't commune, which is totally like be to or be together, which is totally understandable because of COVID. Um, but as you know, if you want to create a community, it's really, really hard to do um, without getting together. So I feel like um, if, if I feel like I feel like suggestions from universities on how to like better connect with people around you would be really helpful instead of just being like, you know, like make the best of it because people are trying to make connections, you know, not just to only friends, but to potential jobs, like to potential clubs, like, you know, like reach out to students and be like, hey, here's how you can stay connected to, you know, your community, your peers, your friends during this time when you necessarily can't be with them physically. I think that could be helpful rather than just being like, well, you know, make the best of what you can do. We talk about mental health a lot on this show. Um, in fact, if you want like our full thoughts on COVID, I would recommend going back to Gideon, correct me if I'm wrong, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, where we did our first episode of this season. Yeah. Did we talk about COVID that episode? I We talked about our feelings about coming back to school and obviously oh, yeah. COVID. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I'd highly recommend that breakdown of what we really think go back you'll you'll hear us talk about it our points are fairly similar now today and it's almost a month later um and as far as our own university goes i mean like are, are these health checks that we have to do daily helping not really no they're kind of pointless like they're you know i got an email today about two o'clock in the afternoon because i forgot to do it because it's a friday morning and i'm doing you know cleaning laundry whatever 12 other things forgot to do it and you know they're threatening oh i'm gonna ch make you change your my asu password and it's like do i really care so significantly about my my asu password no I, I don't i hate to break it to you but it's something i can change whenever i want to change um so there needs like we don't need punishments at the level of northeastern like that that's not okay but you know there needs to be consequences to people not doing things that they should be doing but at the same time universities need to understand that like all hundreds saying this they need to be committed to their students as much as their students need to be committed to them and to keeping their surroundings safe. So yeah, we need our universities to help us and support us in these situations. And unfortunately, ASU is not necessarily doing the best with it. They do have lots of good counseling services. You know, we can all go get free COVID testing whenever we want, which is a good benefit. Um, but yeah, ASU and universities as a whole need to take a look at this, I think, one more time and kind of figure out what the best solution is for each university itself. Obviously, all universities don't have to take the same approach. I guess, I guess it kind of, like, I guess the question that comes out of this, the fact is ASU has crossed a thousand cumulative cases. Um, and those are the confirmed ones. Um, and ASU has fairly decent testing and just about everyone in the dorms was forced to take, actually all of them were forced to take one before coming back. Um, so I think the numbers, at least for on-campus students are very good, but most ASU students live off campus like me. So I did get a COVID test, which I did bring up in a, a few weeks ago. I did test negative, thank goodness. But, um, and but I wasn't required to get a COVID test. And as I've noted, like most of these cases are off campus students. And this comes with case reports of parties and you know, all the things you would normally expect to happen. So a take uh, that has been circulating around from the start is we shouldn't do this. Let's just all, let's just shut shut the doors down. Let's all go home. Give us our money back. Like let people take the refunds and go. Like we just need to go online. And I guess what are your thoughts on that from everybody? 
Well, I did that. <laughs> I'm, I'm back home. I was on campus and now I'm, I'm gone. I'm back home in Chandler. So I guess that surmises my thoughts, at least for myself. I think that's, it, it should, we should just never have gone back to in-person in my opinion. And it's really, really heartbreaking. Or if, you know, we switch back to fully online, it's gonna be really heartbreaking. And also just kind of, um, just kind of, you know, unfair is not even the word to describe it. You know, that's pretty tame, but just extremely unfair to all the students who already have paid tuition to all the students who've already gotten housing um, like in dorms and stuff and you know like who have just invested not only money but like you know kind of just put their life you know at ASU and you know made sure that that's what's going to be happening for them for the next eight months to a year to even longer um, and there's going to be an outcry if there if that happens if refunds are not given if students needs are not met there's going to be an outcry and i really hope that universities don't act like this was just out of the blue this if they're the outcry but i have a feeling that they're going to act like they're going to be like well you know this could happen you know we always knew that there was going to be a risk um you know we have to get used to a new life but for the me the thing is like sometimes life just has to be put on holds and not everything has to always go forward you know so I have two very different opinions. Half of me is like, you know, we should have never done this in the first place. It wasn't a safe decision. Um, the other half of me happens to be the quick paced New Yorker who's like, let's got to move on. We've got to go. We've got to just figure things out and move forward. Um, you look at a place like Sweden, they went for the herd immunity strategy. Granted, they are a much smaller country, um, possibly a healthier country as a whole pre-COVID, um, and they're doing all right right now. But I'm not a scientist. I can't say this solution is better. We've seen it. It's proven that social distancing helps. It's proven that wearing a mask helps. So definitely do those two things, like 100%, please do the things that we know work. But I don't think any of us can confirm, say, we should or should not have gone to school. We don't know what the future is. We don't know what three months, six months, nine months, the year. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what it's going to look like if we went to school, if we didn't go to school. We're going to have to live with whatever decisions we make and whatever decisions our university makes. And unfortunately, that's just the case. I guess I come from a pretty similar conflict perspective here, conflicted one. Just... In terms of, yeah, uh, part of it's like, yeah, this is like looking at just how, okay, the fact is, I think we can all acknowledge the fact is that this country just failed. We failed the corona, what the coronavirus test. We were, and I'm not going to say it was an easy one to pass, just about nobody passed it for what it's worth. But we managed to spectacularly fail. And yes. so... I think that's something that can be acknowledged. So with that, knowing that, and we've known that for months now, we knew that, and I mean, literally this week it was revealed that, oh yes, in fact, the president did know how bad this was when he was telling the public it's not a problem. Like, uh, I have questions there and, uh, and a lot of things to say about that one, but we're not getting into that because of time. Um, the point is, one side's like, yeah, we shouldn't have done it. The other half of me is like, once again, things have to move on. But also, I guess where I am right now is this popsicle stand needs to close down. We're hurting people. We're, ASU is simply hurting the community it is in. We are, con we, like, and it's not something I write to lightly. Like, and yeah, and I wanted this to work, but it's starting to look like the trajectory right now with the information we have is looking like things are not, things do not look like they're going in the right direction. They're, 
I mean, I once again, if I'm proven wrong, thank goodness. I love like sometimes I just want to be wrong. But the fact is, once again, I think um, it, there was an article I read in the this the current issue of the State Press Magazine. Highly recommend reading it. Really good. State Press Magazine is the absolute best. Um, I was reading it earlier today, and it was a piece where someone was saying, like, once again, we're ASU's putting people of color at risk because they're the ones who make up a lot of the work study student workers. And yes, I do think that all things considered, and I say this reluctantly, that yeah, it might be for the best if this popsicle stand packs up and goes home and they actually give refunds. The reason why not, I don't think that's going to happen is they will lose a crud ton of money. So if they do send people home, they're going to send them the same way they did in March with, with a little pat on the back, no pat on the head and go like, bye-bye. <laughs> so yeah. I guess that's my thoughts on it. Oof. Um, well said. Yeah. And it's not a good situation. No. And a lot of people are, a lot of people are having to, I mean, it's just, it's just so tough because I mean, I mean, I really wanted to hope it would work that, you know, I could go on a campus and be, somewhat involved with my with my student works which I still am probably even more so than last year now but in a virtual environment but I, I, there was that chance it was it would have been nice but now at this point I mean we're we're putting a lot of not just students but we're also putting all of Tempe at risk we're putting anywhere that these students are going to at risk and it, it just seems like a lot of risks that we're taking just to keep it open Yeah, I mean, once again, no easy answers. I'm not here to. I'm not here to be one of those annoying talking heads that's like, I have the answer and I know everything. I am here telling you I don't know everything. There's things I do not know. I am not an expert on this topic, but I can tell you from what I know, from what I'm seeing, this doesn't look good. And I guess. I come to the the conclusion I did not want to come to that maybe it's time to wrap things up, but I know it's not. I, once again, I want to say I know that's not going to happen, and that's the worst part. So I guess is how that not the question of will it be bad. The question is how bad is it going to get? Okay. Um, oh, sorry, Alejandra. Oh no, I just I guess I just wanted to say. I, for people listening, you know, I think we have a pretty, you know, smart, we have a good audience. Um, and we, I think we're all saying this, you know, because we really care. And we're speaking as students, because we are taking a part in this community, what, whether we're at home, whether we're going to classes, you know, we just, we want this to make sure, we want everyone to be safe and make sure like, this is good for everyone. And right now, um, the situation is not good for everyone. Yeah, honestly, I, we care. We we care, and this hurts. This friggin' hurts. So, uh, I guess we have gone way over time on that one. Um, I thanks everyone for another conversation on the coronavirus, which I am unfortunately sure will not be our last one. Um, with that, I'm going to hand it off to Ethan. Well, just to, before I go into my own story, I mean, it's just a sort of, it's a fact of life right now that everyone's life uniquely is being, uniquely, this is something that is impacting everyone every day in some way. Maybe not everyone at the same level, but it, it's just, I know that there's sort of a, a sense of COVID fatigue, but it's an unfortunate aspect of where we're at right now that that's how it has to be. Um, so to go into my story today, that's a very um, uplifting story, I jest. Um, 
so the story I wanted to talk about, this happened about a week and a half ago, was um, the announcement of sanctions on the International Corona Court by the United States. So first, I just wanted to delve a little bit into what happened before I really give any uh, history. Um, so last week, the Trump administration announced targeted sanctions on the chief prosecutor of the ICC and her deputy aides, placing them on a list called the Specially Designated Nationals. This move allows the United States to freeze assets belonging to these foreign nationals. So it's typically reserved for those believed to belong to a terrorist or a criminal organization, as well as officials of rogue nations, such as war criminals and state sponsors of terror. And in a sense, it's meant to, the, the, the purpose of these types of sanctions is really to make sure that they can't use the United States as a vehicle for funding their, whatever actions that the United States believes is wrong. And However, it's, this is now being used in, instead as retaliation for the International Criminal Court's decision to continue to investigate United States officials and soldiers for war crimes in Afghanistan. And uh, real quick, I'll be using ICC as shorthand for International Criminal Court um, for now on, so I have to say that the whole thing. So the response from human rights organizations and the international community was one of condemnation. While conservatives in the United States foreign policy community hailed as the victory. The dispute on technical grounds is that the US is not a signatory to the Rome Statute, which is the basis of the ICC, and therefore believes that the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction over the United States. However, the, the ICC stance in this, in this technical aspect is that since the alleged crimes were committed in Afghanistan, which is a signatory, the ICC does have jurisdiction. But I really wanted to move beyond the this sort of this um, disagreement between the ICC and the United States over this really technical aspect. Of course, it's an important aspect because it's um, really, it's a, it's a aspect of sovereignty and in international law. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about the political um, underlying politics of this move. And I think it's one that's rooted in a broad, broader political disdain, which some of the conservative movement, not all of it, but some of the conservative movement has for the ICC and the United Nations. There's a belief that the international community is biased against the United States and Israel to an extent, and that the ICC and the UN is a vehicle for political vendettas against the US and Israel. So they complain that also these investigations are impeding the US ability to operate in the continued war on terror. They in a sense assert that how can the United States continue to operate and fight terrorism if we're constantly being investigated for our actions. And uh, I think just culminated this disdain was culminated when Mike Pompeo sort of back in March, the International Criminal Court is a fundamentally corrupt institution. And also it is in a broader sense, they asked, why is the, why is the ICC investigating the United States when the Chinese and, Ru and the Russians and the Syrians are committing much worse crimes against their own populations and, and conflicts? And I wanted to, to sort of discuss a few of these points. Um, now, just for warning, this is, my view, not, um, not this is now sort of delving more into my view rather than just reporting. So I, the basis of the ICC is to bring to justice those who do not face consequences for the crimes they have committed against nations and peoples. The 20th century was a period which saw the rise and fall of many dictators, a period of great suffering at the hands of tyrants bent on benefiting themselves through war and oppression. And so many of these dictators and criminals and people who committed just such dreadful, dreadful atrocities against their own people and the people of other nations were never held to account because their internal justice systems either were unwilling or unable to bring them to justice. And with the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Iron Curtain, the world in the United States looked to ensure the new century would be one for the better. So with the fall of the Iron Curtain, there is no longer the three worlds in a sense. This is, this is really like a bedrock of 1990s liberal internationalism is that you know, you, we have this opportunity to really have a collective idea of what is international law and to really try to hold, make sure that in the future, people, dictators and criminals that commit these crimes against people will actually be held accountable. And so the ICC was the body that this would be, this, this, this um, political ideal would be advanced through because it, it was a single body which set the standards for protection of the rule of law in the world. And the U.S. was actually a founding member, and Bill Clinton signed the treaty. But in my view, unfortunately, the Bush administration disagreed with the court having jurisdiction, and so they rescinded their signature. And it also coincided 
with the launching of the global war on terror. And so the US state remains the world's greatest and most predominant powder. And many conservatives continue to state a belief in the importance of the United States as a leader of the liberal international order as the continuation of the ideals from the 90s. This is an order which set the standards, as I said, for, for all nations to follow. And the legitimacy of any collective order is that everyone is held to the same standards. And that's really the fundamental bedrock of it is that the powerful nations are treated just the same as the weak nations. Everyone has to follow the same rules. And so on this matter, the US is actually undermined the very international order as created by indignantly pursuing these sanctions against the ICC. The ICC believes the US has shown an inability to fully hold ourselves accountable on the issue of the rules of war because we failed to really really hold people accountable for the, for the alleged crimes committed by the US in the war on terror. And this is all, everything from the black sites to the to what's with, with drone strikes in Afghanistan that have hit civilians to also just a lot of unfortunate atrocities that have been committed. And this is not this is not the international community trying to single out the United States. This is the international community believing, as the US has stated many times, is that we're all in this world order together. We're all supposed to be held accountable. So why not, why doesn't the United States follow the things that it professes to believe in? So and it also sets, a, sets a, a standard or a precedent for other nations such as Syria and China to use this, this, the US's stance on this issue to also skirt international accountability for the crimes they have committed. It really undermines our nations as, as both the democratic establishment and the, many of the establishment or foreign policy continue to say is they want the United States to be a beacon of freedom, the rule of law, is that how can we claim that if we aren't willing to be held to the same standards as other nations? And that's pretty much my thoughts on that matter. Um, does the panel have any thoughts? You know, you know, as for the whole situation before us, you know, with the as the one you're talking about with uh, Pompeo and the federal government instituting sanctions on the ICC. It's a pretty bizarre one, not one that is completely without precedent um, in terms of uh, what does America think about the ICC. There is a law that I feel like needs to be brought up in this context. I'm sure Ethan, yeah, you know I, this I, one. It's jokingly referred to in the Foreign Policy Committee as the Invade the Hague Act. <laughs> yeah, its official name is the American Service Members Protection Act. And it includes a bunch of fun provisions, including prohibiting US uh, cooperation with the International Criminal Court um, and authorizes the president to use all means necessary to bring about the release of covered US persons and covered allied per persons held captive by, on behalf, or at request of the court. We basically have a bill authorizing the president to invade the <laughs> That is where the joke comes from unfortunately, that provision. And it was signed into law by George W. Bush. Um, it is in the legal code. This is not something I'm making up. Yeah. This might sound comical to somebody who doesn't, who is not familiar with American foreign policy, but it is a thing we did. And I guess the point is, is that I think we're doing the classic, and I, this this take is probably going to get me in trouble with uh, some corners, um, but it's a true one. America is doing the thing that all powers do, where the power goes straight up to our heads, and we start thinking we're morally superior and can do no wrong, and in the process, we do lots of wrong, because America is still human. That is a human thing that all powers have done, from the Egyptians to the Romans to the Greeks. <laughs> to us, <laughs> that has always been a thing. The power goes straight to your head and you think you can't do anything wrong. And the way we treat the ICC is sort of that. I, there is some legitimate criticism of international institutions that's worth listening to. Like they don't hold anyone accountable sometimes, but I feel like that, it, our stance toward it as a country is moving in the opposite direction. So I guess those are my initial yeah, and thoughts. It's really important. It's really important.
important that the United States, if, if we do this, I mean, it's just really rather impossible for, I mean, how can any country, how can we say to any other country then, oh, but you have to follow the International Criminal Court or any other really expectation of international law. It, it just, it doesn't make sense to me because if we want to claim that, you know, the United States believes in these values, you have to put them into practice. And in this case, I don't really think we're putting the ideals that we profess to hold into practice. And it's not, there's always this, there's this aspect sometimes in certain circles is that by criticizing the US or criticizing a country that you dislike or you are in a sense anti-American because I hear that a lot that the, um, the ICC is anti-American and that people who work there just don't like us. But as Gideon said, any it, it, to, to acknowledge that a nation has done something wrong is not to hate that nation or to hate its people. It's, it's simply an acknowledgement of, we have this in a sort of sense of broad idea in the international community of what is right and what is wrong. And when a country violates that code, then the community comes together and they says, we think you've done something wrong. And that isn't those countries picking on that country. It's simply trying to ensure that everyone's held accountable. It's, it's not, and it, just like Indian said, it's, it's natural for countries to make mistakes. And so it's not like people are saying that the US is uniquely bad. It's that the ICC is looking and they want to ensure that every country, especially the most powerful, are held accountable just like any other nation. And I guess we're going down on a sinking ship together because I was going to say, it looks like America is just flexing itself again. And like, I'm the big brother, strong country. I can do what I want. And like, no, it's not the case. <laughs> you have to listen to other people, you know, have discourse with other people um, and follow what committees and people that, you know, we should hypothetically value. Um, their opinions and yeah America's doing what America always does and saying we're the best nation we don't really care about what everyone else thinks and unfortunately that seems to be our solution to most global issues and it just doesn't work anymore <laughs> like, like we should we need to move on from that idea it's the idea we've had since we you know basically since World War II ended and we realized we could uh, take on other countries. Yeah, it's a not fun one concern. I, I think it's just a really negative view to take. Once again, I understand there's plenty of legitimate criticisms to be made of international institutions, but this is us pot, doing the pot calling the kettle black thing. It's like us saying international institutions hold no one accountable. And then people say, well, why don't you hold yourselves accountable? I mean, just to for if you'll indulge me for a second to talk a little bit about the bush administration and the things they did including guantanamo bay which is still open by the way we still have people there that is a thing our country is doing they are doing it in our name folks um and they were doing enhanced interrogation otherwise known to the rest of us as torture or a violation of the eighth amendment and they had to do it on soil, which by the way, Guantanamo Bay is in Cuba. They don't want us there. They've made it clear they don't want us there a very long time ago, and we haven't left. So there's just layers on layers of abuses just with that one situation. And in the Bush administration, they were torturing people there. No one's held accountable. They, they wrote memos, they went to courts, no one cared. And that's the thing, once again, I wanna emphasize was done in the name of the American people. No one held accountable and dare we go off and say, so, such and such dictator is bad. Then the rest of the world says, you're doing bad things too. No, like dictators constantly do that. Like the whole whataboutism yeah. game. The whole like, you're, when the, our country goes, you're bad. They're like, <laughs> you're kidding, right? <laughs> And it's also difficult, there's it that also it's difficult then for the countries in the middle, in a sense that aren't that aren't fully, in a sense, fully integrated into the world order of, of the Europe and the United States, but also aren't autocracies and aren't aligned with 
aligned with the sort of what the United States states are the rogue nations of the world, like China and Iran, it, it makes it more difficult because the whole, the US pitch, the US sell on the international stage is, is that in a sense, we profess to believe in things. We profess to believe in the rule of law, in free trade, in protecting the seas, in protecting people's rights, in, the, in religious freedom. Like those are things that the United States says most of the time is our, it has essentially our foreign policy pitch to most, to those countries in the middle. And it really undermines that pitch. If we can't hold our, don't hold ourselves accountably internally when we, when we, again, not to say that if the U.S. makes mistakes that like, that's the worst thing in the world. Again, any, every country makes mistakes. But the way, just like we've learned, and, and I'm sure we've learned from our parents, is that our parents are fine with us making mistakes as long as we apologize for them. And most people are fine with people making mistakes as long as we apologize and we try to improve on those things. And it's a similar aspect in, this, in, in sort of this international world is that the U.S. could improve that pitch if it really truly followed through on those ideals, both domestically and, and abroad. Because otherwise, a lot of the times, these countries will just think, okay, well, the U.S. claims to believe X, Y, and Z, but they aren't really following it, and China will just give us money. Like, they don't care what we do internally. And so the U.S. position is, is less strong, in my view. Couldn't have said it better. Well, I guess... Uh... Any yeah, other thoughts? Much. Oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Anyone else? If any, any other thoughts from the panel? I think you just about said it. <laughs> and yeah, America's just, you know, what America does sometimes, and that's not necessarily okay. As you said, yeah, you need to own up to your mistakes. Guess that's the takeaway. Yes. And um, thank you for explaining as well as you did, because it is like, a very, I mean, messy is, uh, saying this, saying the situation is messy is definitely putting it lightly. So it was, I feel like I was able to understand it. And I hope, um, our, I think our audience will too. Thanks, Alejandro. All right, I'll, I'll hand it off to you for uh, your story. All right, so my story this week is about a country artist by the name of Breland. Um, I discovered his music a few weeks back and decided to take a deeper dive because uh, I was really very, I was very taken away by it. So just get right into it. So country artist Breland is one of the most talented people I have come across in my entire life. No exaggeration there. If you want to I'll talk about pure raw tasks to be put in the conversation. His ability to blend country with hip hop, R&B, and pop is a skill set very few possess. In order to be successful in 2020, artists must have some level of crossover potential so that people want to invest their time and money into them. Although country radio is not true to Breland, he has managed to make his song "My Truck" a hit. According to Rolling Stone, My Truck hit number one on Spotify's Vile 50 chart global and in the United States, and was put onto their top country playlist, Hot Country. Also, as of the time of this recording, My Truck has been used as a sound in over six, 628,000 TikTok videos celebrating truck culture, uh, where most of the videos are people with their trucks, um, basically saying, uh, don't touch my truck, and other people doing cool stuff with it. Um, November last year, but really didn't pick up traction until the first couple months of this year. Um, from the information I was able to find, it appears that my truck peaked at 35 on Billboard's Hot Country Songs chart. I was not able to find its current position or where it peaked at because that requires a Billboard Pro subscription, and I do not have one, so that was what, what I was able to find. Uh, my Trap is a trap country song about, basically, I mean, it's pretty simple. It's about his truck. The opening lyrics of the song read, you can drink my liquor, you can call my lady, you can take my money, you can smoke my, you can say you hate me, you can call me crazy, but don't touch my truck. 
Breland travels through different genres on my track, going from hip hop to country to pop to some army. And by the way, Breland has a voice that hits the ears so smoothly. I'm not very used to many male country artists being able to sing beyond a comfortable range, let alone hit high notes. Breland continues to flex his versatility and his general star quality on horse ride, where he equates riding a cart to a horse ride, a very fun metaphor. When I quote, when I put her in a Ferrari, she looks so fly, that's a horse, Breland confidently. Next up is hot sauce, which makes me think of summer with the trap drums on the beat and a country guitar. The writing is also really clever. Breland sings, quote, everything's better with the hot sauce and later in the verse, body like a bottle, got a hot sauce. However, it isn't until verse two that Breland lets loose with the lines, got my head spinning, that's top sauce, and closes out the verse saying, and I'm sure you get this a lot sauce, but you make a brother wanna tie the knot sauce. It's just very sweet and endearing. Perhaps the most straightforward country song on the record comes in the middle of the EP with In the Woods, which is spelled W-O-U-L-D. Uh, in the Woods featuring Chase Rice and Lauren Elena, already established country artists, who in my opinion are perfect additions to a very sweet and sincere song. On the track, Breland talks about the things he would do for his significant other, proudly exclaiming, quote, I would baby, cut them girls off, you know I would baby, it'll be we all worth it, all not, knock on wood. Be. Tell me what you want, I would do it in a heartbeat. And the chorus says, girl, you really got me lost, got me lost in these woods. And woods is still spelled out, W-O-U-L-D, which is, you know, just, it's a really nice comparison, you know, being in the woods um, in a relationship, you know, not really sure where you're going and then talking about all the things that you would do for your partner to make it work. And I can really hear the love from Breland's voice ooze out of his heart on this song, making for a feel good, Anthem about navigating relationships. The EP starts at the end with a song called Wi-Fi. Unfortunately, it is the worst song on the project, in my opinion. Wi-Fi is a lo-fi R&B song about Breland's relationship struggling and trying to get his girl back. But the whole song pretty much just reads very conventional on an EP that is anything but. When I first listened to the song, it felt like I, could hear, I would hear this blasted on the radio in between more upbeat tracks. To prepare to close out the album, uh, excuse me, the EP is Beautiful Life, which is a blissful reflection on how far Breland has come. Breland's vocals shine on the track where he uses his voice to express how hard he worked to get to this point, where we as an audience can not only hear him, his anguish of trying to get to that successful place, but also the bliss of seeing his dreams come true. Quote, said I'd never make it. I heard that all my life, but when they do me wrong, they only proven me right. And that's the truth, they ain't know that the hate was only love in disguise, so I had to thank you for the beautiful lies, sings a proud Breland. A remix of Breland's My Truck featuring Sam Hunt draws an end to the EP and acts as a mission statement. Breland is laying down the fact that he intends to stay in country and has the co-sign of bona fide country stars like Sam Hunt. He doesn't say it in the song. It's pretty obvious when you get to the end of the album that Breland is in it for the long run. And he doesn't need him or any other established country artist to validate that. The remix makes it also makes it clear that Breland's talent far surpasses that of Hunt. And to be totally honest, most country artists today, Breland is what country should be and what country should embrace. However, whether or not country decides to fully embrace Breland, he's already opened doors to other genres where he can blaze new trails. So I just found him to be a really impressive artist. And I think country should not only embrace Breland fully, but also more black country artists who are pushing the envelope to make country a more dynamic genre. Dang, Alejandro. <clears throat> Dang. Yeah. Um, so I should note, Alejandro sent the song My Truck to all of us before the show. So I'm not familiar with Breland, but I did get to listen to the song My Truck. It is just a fun song. It is just a mm -hmm. classic fun song. And yeah, no, Breland seems to be really doing some cool stuff. Uh, I guess I'll agree with Alejandro. Watch that dude. First of all, congratulations to him because making it in the music business is no easy feat. Um, the fact that he got a song popularized after it coming out couple months after like good for him <laughs> um and yeah we did I listened to my truck earlier too 
Um, it was funny because at first I didn't know quite what I was listening to. Then I heard it and I was like, oh, it's that song from TikTok. And I was like, let me not think about it. That way I actually listened to it. Um, and his vocals were impressive. His tone was great. That's kind of what hooked me. His vocals at the end, the more R&B type sound. Yeah, we'll go with sound. That was good that I, I'm an R&B person. It's just the type of music I grew up listening to. So it's what interested me most. But, you know, being able to combine different types of genres is very impressive and hopefully will help give him a long career. And hopefully country does embrace him because they deserve someone like him. He deserves to be embraced. And as you were saying earlier, Alejandro, there needs to be more black prolific artist in country music, very white music genre and you know it should embrace people of all colors um races sexes whatever you know people should just be embraced especially if they're as talented as someone like him i think it's also important to note as i was going through his instagram the other day and it was really interesting um to basically see like how almost meteoric his rise was like he was recently featured on um, keith urban's newest album um, he was recording a song. Uh, he was in the studio with Kirk Franklin, very well-noted gospel singer. Um, seemed that he was in the studio also with Ty Dolla Sign, and also was making a song with um, the lead singer of Rascal Flatts. So it's clear that people are taking notice of his potential, but I hope that you know these artists are acting out of goodwill and really co-signing him um, to and and will continue to embrace him in country, especially in Nashville, Nashville specifically, like as a location. And you know, when they're in the executives and other artists that they're bringing his name up when they talk about people that they wanna collaborate with or even just write with, um, because you know, they can put them on their songs and you know, they can look good, but if they're not, you know, actively talking about him as an active player in country, it really won't mean much. But it seems that all of those, um, collaborations and all those things are in good faith. For sure, connections are super huge in any industry, um, especially entertainment forms, whether it be journalism, movies, music, whatever it is. And so for to establish connections with other prolific artists, I hope that that goes well for him. Um, and yeah, his name does need to come up in conversation because the more you talk about someone, the more he's on people's radar. Radar, not Raider. So, you know, if you like his music, if you go listen to it, go tweet about it, go follow him on Instagram, make it known that you like him, show people, especially music artists, your support. And with that, we're going to send it to Haley with Sports. So, Instead of telling you what I'm talking about, I'm just going to start talking about it. Two weeks ago, I opened a door that tied together the real world and the sports world. And last week, I was lucky enough to get to close that door and talk about something that was fun. I knew the door would open again, as it always does, but I didn't think it would open up heavy with winds blowing and the door just like fully coming down. Um, and I obviously didn't think it would happen that quickly. And maybe that's my fault. Maybe I was naive for thinking that. For anyone who doesn't know, yesterday marked the 100th start of the NFL when the Rams took on the Texans in Missouri. The results of the game yesterday weren't surprising. Anyone who watched any bit of football last year could guess that the Chiefs would win. What was surprising, or should be surprising, however, is how the fans in attendance reacted before yesterday's game, and the fact that there was fans there at all. With the fans in attendance, the Chiefs decided to play a video of the Star-Spangled Banner and lift every voice and sing. The Texas players chose to stay in their locker room until it was required of them to come out on the field in order to show support of Black Lives Matters. Roughly 25% of the 17,000 fans in attendance proceeded to boo as the Texans and Chiefs locked arms to show unity right before the game. Texans defensive end J.J. Watt said, quote, the moment of unity I personally thought was good. I mean, the booing during that moment was unfortunate. I don't fully understand that. There was no flag involved. There was nothing involved other than end quote. Many fans later took to Twitter that night to share their thoughts on the nightly events, 
And I just want to read a random collection of tweets I've seen within the past couple of days, specifically today, actually, I was kind of looking them up throughout the show. First tweet reads, NFL gets booed. Entire arena for their Black Lives Matters unwanted political nonsense at Chiefs vs. Texans game. When will at the NFL and at the NBA get it in their heads that people don't want politics at a sporting event? Next tweet. Lovely moment last night between the hashtag Texans and hashtag Chiefs before the game as they locked arms in solidarity. Speaking of versus hashtag Bales on Sunday, I'm not interested in seeing any more kumbaya moments in a division rivalry game. Bring it, break it, win. Next tweet. Disappointed is an understatement. With all the players who decided to play last night's game, those fans booing during the moment of unity did not deserve to watch you guys play. Final tweet I'm going to read. It's a list. One, nationally there probably isn't a whole lot of interest in the Chiefs versus Texans. Two, this is more, there's more important stuff happening in the world right now. Three, the NFL is not as cool as it used to be. Four, means pro sports are making is turning off lots of fans. So obviously there's varying opinions on what was happening last night. And yes, it's true that like last night, the ratings were bad for the NFL. But yes, there was a lot of other sports going on. Yes, there was political stuff. That's not what I'm here to talk about. It's up to you to figure out what you want to think about why the ratings were down. In researching this segment, I stumbled upon an article in the Star Tribune, and I highly recommend reading it because Michael Rand just about sums up my thoughts, and he put them into words a lot better than I can. So for that, I'm going to read a quote from him. Quote, while those fans seem to like it just fine when politics they agree with are mixed with sports, and maybe watching Thursday Night Football is the only media they consume that challenges those beliefs. These topics are all around us for good reason. Until we address them, maybe we don't deserve the full escape from reality that football fans seem to crave. End quote. In short, I think you all know this already, but I agree with Rand. If we can't look at racism and can't use sports as a platform to put a stop to racism, then maybe we don't deserve sports at all. Yes, sports are supposed to be fun, but there's always going to be something more important than sports. And as someone who literally wants to have a job in the industry of sports, it takes a lot to say and be a thing if there's things that are more important than that. But if sports can be used as a platform to end hatred, then I say play on and play hard. Any thoughts you guys want to express? I think, oh, you can go, Ethan. Okay. Just go. Okay, I guess I'll go. Um, this is another one of those weird, um, um, we're on Zoom things and it's obvious. Um, Anyways, um, yeah, Haley, I think that opinion columnist right there is right. Like, like, do we, like, if we can't address it, if we can't use something as prominent as sports are in our society to address such important issues as racism, also, I really want to keep in mind <clears throat> the fact is that the NFL is very Black. Like, and... Like these, and this wasn't even a Black Lives Matter thing. This was a, we stand together. We stand unified, like a show of unity. And you have this crowd booing them. Like shame on them. Let's start there. Like, um, like I feel like it's just the classic black person takes stance on anything. It's a political problem. And I'm not here to say it shouldn't be political. Everything's political, folks. Welcome to welcome to planet Earth. I hate to break it to you. Um, however, I don't I don't like using the term it shouldn't be political, but it should be a partisan, it shouldn't be a divisive thing. Unity's good. Standing like standing together. Like things are rough right now. And the fact is that a mostly white crowd booing a bunch of black men showing a sign of unity. Um, <laughs> I, I can tell you what that looks like to me, but I don't need to go any further because I'm sure you all guess where I'm going. Yeah, the fact that athletes, athletes are people just like anyone else. They have a right to express themselves. Everyone has a right to express themselves. So the fact that they're getting booed for their expression 
profession is not something with me as a human being or a sports journalist. As uh, as I will fully admit, I've definitely in the times of the pandemic, I have used sports as a getaway from reality. However, I've never had a problem with the players showing unity or um, saying Black Lives Matter. Um, and as you said, a lot of people, or not you, but a lot of those tweets that you referenced were saying about how these are politics. And I think it goes to show so, um, how truly how many people view Black Lives as a political device and how undervalued Black labor is in this country. Um, you know, they basically view these men as entertainment and entertainment only. Um, you know, kind of, you know, doing the, making these superstar plays, doing these uh, superstar things that they could probably never achieve. But to them, like, that is the peak of what, what, you know, kind of people can do. But when these people start advocating for themselves and start advocating for their people, they get nervous because, in my opinion, I think they 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 feel like they're threatened and their existence is threatened but it's the opposite you know these black players lives are threatened every day and them taking a stand is and using their platform is what they can do to help their communities um how unfortunately very unfortunately these nfl fans don't see it that way and they see it as an m and really i think they should take this moment to really look in look and try to educate themselves, which is really a, like kind of a lofty expectation um, because, you know, obviously I'm not expecting these fans to do that. Um, and as the point had been brought up, you know, do we deserve sports? No, we, in my opinion, we don't deserve sports. You know, these, uh, these um, majority black athletes are going and have to perform at the highest level every night or every other night or once a week. Meanwhile, they're having to deal with all of the pressures of being a black athlete and, and feeling the pressures to speak up and just being black in America while their labor and their actual values are extremely undervalued by the people watching them. Uh, so that's my take on it. I'm just gonna quickly come out and say, I don't side with this side, yeah, yeah. but I do understand the they're getting paid millions and millions of dollars to be out there performing. Yes, they're getting paid crazy amounts. That's true. <laughs> you are correct. Like they, they shouldn't be getting paid that much to begin with. But that doesn't make it okay for you to hate on these people and bash on them for, you know, just saying what they want to say and expressing their thoughts. And yeah, I agree. I, I don't think we deserve. I think we need to realize that there's things that are more important than sports. Whether the Redskins, not the Redskins, because they're not that anymore, I'm sorry. Whether the Washington football team, the Dallas Cowboys, Eagles, Cardinals, whoever wins a game, that's not important in the grand scheme of things. Life is going to move on with or without sports, whether your team wins or they don't win, like that doesn't matter ultimately. Any closing thoughts? Uh, just another yikes moment from the world of sports, which unfortunately sucks. Um, people, stop. Come on. Take a moment and think about what you're doing before you do it. And I guess that's all I can, I guess that's my most charitable take on the thing now. No, for sure. I mean, I, as we said all day today, just think about what you're doing and take responsibility for your actions. That tends to be a through line through all of our episodes. Um, and with that being said, thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. If you would like to, we would appreciate if you would follow us on Twitter at the review underscore square now, I believe. No, it's, no you got it wrong. You got it wrong. It's, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> It's at review underscore square. Yeah, follow that on Twitter. Not what I said. Um, I've been Haley Smilo. Rest of the panel, you guys want to say your Oh yeah, I, I'm getting karaoke. <laughs>
and uh, I'm Alejandro Once again, thank you for listening, and uh, have a good week. The song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime. <laughs>